legalizefreedom.com. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat. Beginning in August 2020, Freedom from Fear is a free-form discussion series taking the title as its starting point. In this episode, Steve Taylor and I examine how our relationship with fear has changed over time as the world has become more complex and densely populated. Aside from triggering untold levels of anxiety and hysteria, the 2020 pandemic has served to exacerbate divisions already causing huge problems globally. Devoting so much mental and emotional energy to the situation has undoubtedly made it worse. Fear rarely serves any purpose outside of fleeting moments of real danger, and living in fear is seriously counterproductive. If, however, we can make it through this mass psychosis relatively intact, opportunities for positive personal and collective transformation await. Hi Steve, thanks so much for joining us again today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Hi Greg, it's nice to be with you again. Uh, Steve, today is the third installment in uh, the new podcast series I've entitled Freedom from Fear. Uh, in my spoken introduction, people will have got an idea of where we will be going with that. Before we get started, however, for listeners who don't know, could you just tell them a little bit about your background and your work in general? I'm a transpersonal psychologist in my kind of role as an academic. Uh, I'm the current chair of the the Transpersonal Psychology section of the British Psychological Society. And I got a post at Leeds Beckett University as a researcher and a lecturer. And But mainly, you know, my, the main thing in my life is writing. I'm an author of uh, 12 books, I think, on psychology and spirituality, all dealing with um, areas such as higher states of consciousness, spiritual transformation, transcending materialism, and, and similar issues. Okay, well... The idea I had for this series literally started as three words, freedom from fear. I was just, I guess I was reflecting on the situation that we're all living through currently. This has been recorded in September 2020, and we're still dealing with the coronavirus crisis worldwide. And again, it's three words popped into my head and because and I wanted to do something to try and come up with some useful strategies, whether they're practical or abstract. I just wanted to contribute something, basically, because I've never seen so much fear in the world, and I hate seeing people suffer, mm. especially innocent people. And I see so many people suffering now psychologically, suffering mentally, um, who have not been directly touched by the pandemic as such. I, I mean, you know, they're not, they're not suffering from the illness as such. They may not have anyone in their circle of family and friends who's suffering from it. But nevertheless, there's been tremendous fear and panic and stress and anxiety and even hysteria around all of this and it's already taken a huge psych yeah. psychological toll there does seem to be a strong atmosphere of anxiety around and you know obviously it's not something tangible 
but it's there and people are being affected by it without knowing it. I mean, I've noticed it even in myself. I'm, I'm normally a very calm person. Uh, I live in a, you know, sort of fairly, um, fairly stable state of well-being. But I've noticed a sort of bit of anxiety in my thoughts. My mind seems a little bit busier than normal. You know, my sleep isn't quite as good as normal. So I think uh, there is a bit, there is something in the air. It reminded me of when I when I was younger. I lived in um, Eastern Germany just after the change from communism to capitalism. And while I was there, I just I felt this sort of tangible sense of anxiety in the atmosphere. It was it was, it was very strong. It sort of hit me as soon as I went there, and it affected me. And it's something similar to that. Is you know, there's a major change in our lives, a major change in our society, and people are struggling to adjust to it and um yeah we're, we're, a lot of us are just picking picking up on this um atmosphere of our anxiety the collective sort of energy field um jung's idea of the collective unconscious is very powerful and i think we all know the expressions about the wisdom of crowds and the madness of crowds and that works um subliminally and, and at a subconscious level as well it works in ways mm. that we don't directly perceive and it is very easy to get caught up in you know the emotional energy of a situation you know whether it's national or global or even as I say just in a crowd of people and you we've all said at times you walked into a room there was a bad atmosphere yeah. or whatever it happens to be um so no matter how grounded or sort of stable emotionally or mentally one might feel, as I say, the atmosphere at the moment is so febrile um, that yeah, it's very, very yeah. difficult to get away because you can't completely zone yourself off from it because no, chances, yeah. ch- chances are that people you know, you know, members of your family and your, your close personal circle are being very mm. adversely affected by this and you don't want to um, in any way sort of mani- you know, belittle what it is they're no, going through. No. Yeah, I mean, I think this um, this notion of um, subliminal subliminal effect through uh, um, atmospheric conditions, not not literally in terms of weather, but I mean just in terms of kind of the emotional atmosphere around human beings. I think it's an area that needs more research. Now, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that highly spiritually developed people have a certain atmosphere around them, a certain aura or radiance, which affects the people they come into contact with. And I noticed this myself when um, when I was with Russell Williams, who we've talked about before, and he had this very powerful aura around him, and people came to see him, not so much to listen to him, but just to feel this kind of radiance he had around him. But I think everybody has a certain degree of radiance around them, and in some cases it's negative. You know, there are some people who we instinctively shy away from because they have this negative aura around them. Other people we instinctively we are instinctively attracted to because they have a positive aura around them. And I think when you get a a large number of people living in a city, for example, I mean, I live in Manchester, which is at least a million people, or if you live in London, which is several million people, then it builds up into a stronger kind of collective atmosphere, which affects people, usually, you know, in a stressful, negative way, because there's so much energy radiating from so many thousands of people that, um, you know, it's a little bit overwhelming, a little bit stressful to deal with. But, yeah, I think that's definitely what's happening at the moment. The collective emotional atmosphere is quite toxic. And, um, you know, it's it's affecting everybody, whether we know it or not. Yeah, and I think you could say 
quite safely that even prior to the pandemic that the the, the atmosphere was quite febrile you know the the political atmosphere um, mm. in many parts of the world for different reasons but certainly whilst living in the west you could identify the, all the tensions uh, there were around Brexit, you know, in the United Kingdom, the tensions there have been in the European Union, countries leaving or wanting to leave and the immigration situation. Then we we don't have to say much about what's going on in the US. The, the situation they were in collectively, I think, in their psychology has left them actually particularly uh, poorly uh, adapted to deal with the pandemic. And I think that's why I some, pe- so. yeah, some mm. people are looking on now going, why is the US dealing so badly with this? I mean, the, the United Kingdom yeah. gov- government have hardly been paragons of of excellence in this area. But um, I, I, so I think that's, that it's like anything else, isn't it? When adversity hits, your state of yeah. mind, your state of mind mm. can say a lot about how well prepared you're going to be to deal with that. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it certainly doesn't help when you have a, a malignant na- a narcissistic psychopath you know, in charge of a country, as in America. Um, but, yeah, I think one of, one of the things which has happened is that um, in American culture, there's a, a kind of very strong division. I mean, there always was, but it's become more intense now. And also in Britain, you've got this duality between the Brexiteers and the Remainers. That's, the, you know, the kind of division that I've never really been aware of before. Um, and I think that's probably a reaction to the, the anxiety and the uncertainty. You know, history shows that when there are periods of instability, periods of uncertainty and anxiety, then that's when, you know, that's when wars begin. That's when civil wars begin. That's when previously peaceful populations begin to divide and to fall into conflict. And I think so. I think that's happening in America. I think it's probably a reaction to the pandemic that there's this sort of increasing hysterical division between the left and right, between the conservatives and Republicans. And it seems to be becoming more extreme almost every day. And as a species, we don't deal very well with uncertainty, uh, with the unknown. Mm. And so we will actually put ourselves into, you know, a complete tailspin of stress and anxiety and fear as we try to get back to normal as quickly as possible, as it were, you know. Uh, This is why we seek... Mm. Uh, quick and easy answers as well. And certainly I think that in doing mm. that to many of the systemic problems that our societies have faced, you know, with the environment and uh, the economy and whatnot in recent decades, yeah. we've, tur- we've turned to quick fixes, easy answers that have actually made the situation. They've only kicked the can down the road, so to speak. And I think the pa- mm. the, in mm. many ways, the pandemic is a result of that. You know, there's um, no matter what you think of the origins of it, there seems to be... Um, an environmental dimension that has aggravated it, that's made it worse. There seems to be an economic dimension that has mm-hmm. left some countries, I say, particularly unprepared for or unable to respond. So we are going through this time of obviously of tremendous uncertainty and, and people are sort of saying we've never faced a situation like this. And that's true. We've had pandemics in the past, but not the convergent, the convergence of crises that we're seeing now capped off by mm-hmm. this pandemic. So it is a time of great uncertainty. It's also uh, like a lot of times of crisis, uh, a time of potential opportunity. So yeah. my hope is that our fear in this situation doesn't cloud our vision uh, from seeing what we could possibly take away from this, how we could use this to mm. improve our situation going forward. I think there are, there are possibly two main reactions to the kind of threats we're facing at the moment, the, the, you know, the terrible uncertainty. One is... 
that there's a desire for kind of simplistic stories that make sense, just to make some sense, to bring some certainty into our minds. So I think that's maybe the appeal of conspiracies at the moment and the kind of a simplistic notions of what's good and what's bad. Um, I think, you know, you could say that the human race has always lived with a great deal of uncertainty. In previous centuries, life was very precarious. You know, death was much more, uh, much more present than it is for us nowadays. Children were in danger of dying continually. A lot of children did die and so on. So I think, I think people dealt with that kind of uncertainty with religion. Maybe one of the roots of religion is a desire for certainty, a desire for stories that, you know, that make sense of a kind of uncertain and unstable world. I think that's happening now with the kind of the strange conspiracy theories that are cropping up to try and make some sense of what's happening. But also the second reaction to uncertainty is division, duality, because the ego feels threatened, it feels fragile, it wants to be strengthened, and the ego always strengthens itself in opposition, you know, it strengthens itself uh, in relation to the other. So we, we create an other in order to strengthen our own egos. So I think in America, you know, the, the division between the conservatives and Republicans, uh, the increasing duality in, in Britain, that's probably, you know, an egoic reaction to the, the uncertainty which is happening. Characterised in the political scene by the neoliberalism in the growing, uh, <clears throat> expanding throughout the second half of the 20th century, I think we, you and I, of our generation, and, and I'd say the certainly the previous one or two generations before us have lived in a time of apparently growing certainty, despite hiccups, you know, post-Second World War, I'm thinking of. there. You know, war has continued to occur. There's been regional instability and various problems. But overall, it seemed like the direction of travel was up in, a term, mm. in material terms and in terms of stability and certainty. And that started to break down, really, in the early 21st century. I... Actually, my, my marker, my sort of line in the sand, uh, is actually 9-11. Now, of course, it's a cliche mm. to say that it changed everything, and there was lots of people at the time saying, you know, 9-11 will change everything. But I'm thinking it from the point of view of our collective psychology. Having lived through that, and I don't know how you feel about this, but having lived through that, for me, it was a, a sort of a, a change that we never really fully recovered from psychologically it was a big blow to our mm. no notions of uh, of a certain world and a stable world and um yeah. so I, i've and i've actually seen many parallels with the reaction from all sides from politicians from you know from from critics social commentators from you know the, the masses of populations and all sorts of disciplines that are very similar to reactions to 9-11 you know in terms of like um what caused this and what we can do about it uh, yeah i i think um there's one thing you touched on earlier um which i think is important and that's um you know the potential for growth and you could say that we're living through a time of trauma and 9-11 was an incredibly traumatic event obviously and the pandemic we're living through now is traumatic and in some ways, we live in a, a time of, um, you know, imminent crisis with, with climate change and ecological dangers, um, political instability and so on. So we seem to be living in a time of uh, great crisis at the moment. Um, but, but, you know, every crisis is an opportunity for growth. And um, we, we, we may also have experienced and be experiencing post-traumatic growth 
which is, as I'm sure you know, that's a pretty well-established concept in psychology that shows that trauma in the long run brings positive effects. It makes people more appreciative of their lives and other people. It makes them um, feel more connected to nature and to other people. And it makes them feel more resilient and more competent in their lives and so on. So trauma is it's an incredible source of growth, you know. It's, it's, it's actually quite, you know, I do, I do a lot of research on spiritual awakening and I've hardly ever met anybody who's undergone spiritual awakening in a, in a kind of dramatic and uh, sudden sense. I've hardly ever met anybody who hasn't been through intense trauma preceding that. It's intense trauma brings growth it unlocks our potential, but it also can bring sudden and dramatic spiritual transformation. So I think that's, you know, that's the positive um, aspect of what we're going through. There's a lot of potential for growth. Yes, transformation through trauma is, is a phrase that I've used many times. And there are similarities here uh, between when you mentioned spiritual awakening and what I've uh, written and spoken about many times, you know, the near-death experience, which I know you're familiar with. So I've likened what happens or what is what was happening in general, as I say, with what I call the three E's, energy, economy, environment, Prior to this pandemic, I was saying it was like some sort of potentially building to a collective near-death experience, almost perhaps a literal mm. near-death. And that that's sort of been amplified now. So I think when you're in the midst of a crisis, however, it can be difficult to see from the perspective that you just mentioned. So that's what I'm attempting to do partly with this, is in mm. being the mm. sort of eye of a hurricane and say let's not let's not collectively lose our minds while we're going through this because there is there's always light at the end of the tunnel it might be a different hue of light than some people would like but you know this this won't last forever but when you're slap bang in the midst of and I've experienced it in my personal life I'm, I'm sure everyone has at least once when you're uh, in the middle of trauma stress a crisis it's at times it can be impossible to see a way out, even though you know, you know, intellectually and mm. ins instinctually that, you know, this too shall pass. So, and I think that's where pe people are right now, even though we've only, quote unquote, yeah. been experiencing this since March, well, certainly in the West anyway, for some people that, mm. that feels like an eternity, you know, could people really feel, I think, quite punch drunk now because they've never had to go through this amount of upheaval and change for this long. Yeah, that's true. But at the same time, you know, I, I found in my research that there are there are certain conditions which bring about growth and transformation. And, um, you know, because everybody goes through trauma at some point in their lives, but not everybody undergoes post-traumatic growth. And certainly not everybody undergoes spiritual transformation. So there's something that distinguishes the people who undergo growth and transformation from other people who don't. And it depends on these. It's related to things like attitude um you know the ability to uh, explore your own experiences your own mental states and it's a lot to do with acceptance as well you know acceptance seems to be the um the trigger for transformation or you know the precondition of growth so uh, you know so even though as you say when you're in the midst of trauma it feels um you know, you're almost too close to it to take a wide perspective but there are some you know approaches you can take to to mitigate the trauma and also to to unlock the the transformational potential within the trauma well fear has its uses of course as i've discussed uh, with previous guests you know it's a sort of survival drive 
uh, hardwired into us to react to dangerous situations, you know, a spur to react to do something. Um, mm. if, we, if we feel no fear of anything, it's a bit like those rare individuals who feel no pain, no physical pain because of, uh, you know, a, a strange quirk in their, their, their <clears throat> biological makeup. Well, that can be very dangerous if you feel no pain. And oh, yeah. That's why I would say, you know, if you felt no fear, because then you wouldn't be able to recognize a situation that threatened your, your life. But it can very then, very quickly then become paralyzing and uh, yeah. have, a, have a completely counterproductive effect. So, and I think that's what, that's something to watch for. What does, what does psychology, your experience of psychology in general say about fear, you know, perhaps in its, its function and, mm. uh, and origins? Well, it's based on uh, instinctive factors. Like, as you say, it, 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 uh, fear is a, you know, it warns us about imminent danger. It warns us about um, phenomena which threaten our survival. Because, you know, most of our mental traits have been formed through evolution, you know, over hundreds, tens of thousands of years. So most of our fears are thousands of years old, tens of thousands of years old. So, you know, there are a lot of people that have instinctive fears of uh, the darkness, um, spiders, insects, and certainly, you know, heights. And these are all things which would threaten our survival. So it's right for us to be afraid of them. But, the, but with human beings, there's a whole sort of extra psychological, mental uh, level as well. I mean, a lot of these instinctive fears are amplified so much by mental factors, you know, and uh, they become irrational, they become fixed within us. They become overlaid with lots of mental uh, attitudes. And, um, you know, that, I mean, that's the whole thing about human beings. We have this sort of egoic mind which inflates fear. And, um, and I, th- I think the ego brings in a whole, whole load of extra fears as well, which are not instinctive. I think there are a lot of things we, we fear which are not based on survival or well-being. They're, based, they're created by our minds. So, you know, fearing the future, for example, is a purely conceptual fear. Uh, and the fear of uh, fear of other people, fear of groups, fear of uh, um, you know other ethnic groups or other social groups which we're, who we're not familiar with. It's wholly conceptual, you know. So you know, all animals uh, are programmed to instinctively respond to threats to their survival, but human beings have this whole load of extra fear just just for us. Well, and of course, one thing that's being aggravated in this pandemic situation is fear of other people. Mm. Not on in that sort of um, the more abstract. Well, some people wouldn't see it as abstract, you know. But the fear of, of difference of the other, you know, whether it's mm. people of a different nationality, a different race, a different religion, but this apparently concrete threat, literally of contagion from other people, and that's always existed. But that's that's one of the things that's making this so incredibly divisive. Is I'm that, not sure if it always has existed, actually. Um, just so, just for you know, to an extra point, because um, a lot of diseases uh, which we're familiar with nowadays are fairly recent in human history, and uh, you know, prehistoric human beings were lived in a you know a largely disease-free environment, so they probably didn't have the same fear of contagion. But um, but sorry, carry on. No, uh, no, that, that's a very good point, actually, and, and you know, you're you're well placed to make that. I guess maybe then the, the fears of prehistoric humans. I mean, they. That they had the fears that we discussed, you know, the instinctual fears of, um, you know, physical threats. I wonder to what extent, and this is something I've, I've, I've always wondered about that we can't really know, is 
to what extent because we're we're told that we you know we're, there's this whole competition versus uh, cooperation debate that goes on in various dimensions you know of sociology and psychology and mm. um, human history and I've always wondered to what extent when because uh, we hear so much about the about the violence of centuries and millennia gone by and the you know the brutality but also we see you know the great uh, achievements in building and cooperation and and all the rest of it so I've often wondered to what extent say uh, prehistoric tribe uh, hunter-gatherer tribe making its way across the land that encountered another group of humans would respond would it instinctively be greeting you know or would it would they inst- yeah. instantly see them as a threat um you know no no not at all i mean um i mean one thing you got to remember is that in prehistoric times populations were incredibly small you know i, I read one um one estimate that said that um the population of europe uh, 15,000 years ago was probably only, sorry, the population of the world, uh, 15,000 years ago was probably only half a million. And there are only 20,000 people, 29,000 people in Europe, according to the same estimate. So, you know, so life wasn't really a competitive struggle. People weren't really competing over resources or territory. So, you know, there's, there was really no reason for people to, to wage war with one another or to feel threatened by one another because they weren't competing, you know, and, Evidence suggests that, that that was the case, that evidence has found that there was a lack of territorial behavior in prehistoric hunter-gatherers. And based on the observations of uh, present-day or recent hunter-gatherer tribes who live in the same way as our prehistoric ancestors, and that's really important because uh, there were a lot of hunter-gatherers who don't live in the same way as our prehistoric ancestors. Some, pre- some hunter-gatherer tribes have been affected by colonialism or they're, they're late there are later social development and some hunter-gatherer tribes are hierarchical and have chiefs and and so on but the hunter-gatherers who live in the same way as our prehistoric ancestors don't tend to be warlike um, and they tend to be very extremely egalitarian and when they when they encounter other tribes they don't react by feeling threatened they they you know they they form cooperative bonds with other tribes Sometimes they even exchange members. You can swap tribes. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's a, there's a massive fallacy that prehistoric life was incredibly brutal, nasty, brutish and short. It wasn't at all. That's a giant fallacy. And, um, you know, in that sense, people were not threatened by one another. They were very hospitable and, um, and generally peaceful. Something you said a few moments ago about fear of the future uh, struck a chord because that's something again that I've spoken about very often and this is perhaps the dimension in which we um, perhaps for many thousand years now have differed from our ancient ancestors in terms of where we are not being in the moment being lost in the past and lost in the future and forgetting about the past is one thing but you I mean you can populate the future with anything you like uh, you might base it mm. on the present, but often as not, people populate their futures with, um, at best, sort of pie-in-the-sky dreams that they they don't really do anything to move towards, or, you know, I'll do it tomorrow, you know, the, the future. Um, yeah. Or fill it with fears, um, some of them based, again, on reality, on the present. But I've always thought that that was pointless, that yeah. you either, you know, if you've got a, a present that you're not comfortable with, you either accept it 
or do something about it. And if you can't do anything about it, then accept it. But colouring the future needlessly uh, dark mm-hmm. just serves no function whatsoever. And you can, if you're not yeah. careful, have the you know bringing about self fulfilling prophecy. You know, if you think something bad's going to happen to you, then is it more likely to? There's certainly some people who think that there's a there's an actual concrete dimension to that without knowing yeah. without knowing the mechanism of how that works. They, they do. This is where positive thinking comes from. You know, the idea that mm. Uh, mm. your 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 state of mind can material affect your circumstances. And so yeah. I think bringing this back to what's going on at the minute and talking about you know the, the risk versus opportunity. I think that you know what we move towards. People are talking about the future with great uh, certainty and great inevitability about you know what will happen. Um, I think that's mm. still I think that's still very much up for grabs individually and collectively. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that emerged from the pandemic, one of the possibly positive aspects of it, was that I knew a lot of a lot of people who were beginning to to live in the present. Because, you know, nobody really knew how long it was going to last. Nobody knows how long it is going to last. And there were people at home with their kids you know, for weeks on end, like me. You know, my kids were at home for, they've only just gone back to school, so they were at home for more than five months. And, you know, we had no idea how long it was going to last. We had no idea what the future was hold, would hold. And when you, you know, on one level, when you're faced with that kind of uncertainty about the future, you have no choice but to be present. Your only strategy really is to to take each day as it comes, to take to live in each moment as it unfolds before you. And when you do that, you know, you do find a kind of surprising well-being in just simply living from moment to moment. And it's the well-being which is always there, but we, we miss it because we spend so much time focusing on the future and on the past. But yeah, but I, I agree with you that, you know, nothing really ever good comes out of the future, comes from contemplating the future. In the same way, there's not much really that comes, not much good that comes from contemplating the past. You know, in the same way that you look forward to future events, uh, we may feel nostalgic about past events. But even though it, it may bring us a kind of a slight tinge of pleasure, it's kind of underpinned with sadness as well. Nostalgia is always a little bit sad because those things have passed away. And looking forward to the futures, you know, that has a negative aspect to it too because it makes us feel a bit dissatisfied with the present. It makes us want to run towards the future, away from the present. So even the the good things which seem to be associated with the future and the past have a negative underside to them. So really, you know, the only the only stable and strong well-being that we can experience as human beings is in the present, in just sort of attending to each moment as we live through it um, and uh, enjoying our experience in the present moment, wherever we are, wherever we are and whatever we're doing. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com.